0: This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org.
1: Welcome to the JMR podcast. I'm David Johnson, your host for today's podcast, and we are recording on May 28, 2021. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Rodriguez medical historian at Northwestern University in the Global Health Studies Program, uh, the Department of Medical Education, and the Graduate Program in Medical Humanities and Bioethics. Dr. Rodriguez's teaching and research focus on the history of reproduction, clinical practice, and research ethics. Her recent book from Rutgers University Press, The Love Surgeon, A Story of Trust, Harm and the Limits of Medical Regulation is a featured book review in the current issue of the Journal of Medical Regulation. Dr. Rodriguez, welcome to the JMR Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Well, we are glad you can join us. Dr. Rodriguez, in in many ways, as I read your book, it is in in a way of the story of one physician, Dr. James Burt, and one patient in particular, Janet Phillips. But let's start with Dr. Burt. Who was he and what happened that he became the center of such a controversy and the, the subject for your book?
0: So Dr. Burt was an OB-GYN, so an obstetrician gynecologist. He practiced um, in Dayton, Ohio. His practice began in the late 1950s and he practiced until the late 1980s. Um, and as an ob he delivered a lot of babies, um, and as was common for ob in for the bulk of the 20th century, um, you would perform an episiotomy uh, during uh, the third stage of labor. And for those of you who don't know what an episiotomy is, an episiotomy is a cut that physicians really routinely were making um, on women when the baby's head was about to emerge. And the idea was it expand the vaginal opening to give the baby a bit more uh, room to come out. The idea was it would prevent tearing from women. Mm -hmm. As an aside, it turns out they were wrong. But back to the episiotomy. So it was really common for doctors to do this cut and to repair the cut. Well, in the 1960s, Dr. Burt starts kind of changing the episiotomy repair that he's doing, also not uncommon but he starts adding significant um, details and additions to what he's doing, to where he sort of builds up his own surgery, essentially, that he believes that he claims is actually enabling women to have better sexual responses post-childbirth. And he claims that women were telling him this where he hadn't told them he'd done anything different than a quote-unquote standard episiotomy repair. So what gets him in trouble um, with a number of physicians in Dayton, Ohio, is is that he was a couple of things. One, he starts um, uh, advertising essentially by the mid 1970s, advertising this surgery as a sexual enhancement surgery. So explicitly sort of promoting the surgery as this. Second, he starts making a number of claims about the surgery and about the benefits for which he doesn't really have evidence to support. Um, And so there's, and then finally, there's um, a number of patients who Go on to develop some complications post-surgery that some physicians become increasingly concerned about the sort of not just the efficacy, but actually the safety of the of the surgery as he's doing it. So that's that's sort of what gets him in trouble as he's doing a surgery um, that some physicians are finding troubling in that um, they're seeing some bad outcomes from some patients.
1: Got it. Now Dr. Burt relinquished his medical license and it's been over 30 years, so I'm wondering how you happened upon this story and what actually then led you to undertake the research and writing of this book itself?
0: So my first book and my dissertation work was actually on um, history of female circumcision as a surgical practice in the United States and the history of that. And one of the things that Bert did with his, what he called his love surgery, that's his label Mm -hmm. for it, um, is that he circumcised the clitoris. And so to be clear, he was removing the clitoral foreskin, but not the organ itself. Um, And that's how I came across Dr. Bert's practice. And I'm going to actually go back quickly to add something to my first, your first question, my response. The thing that really gets Bert in trouble and actually how I came upon him was because the national news sort of descends upon him because some of the women who have complications go on a CBS program that no longer exists national TV. To say they didn't really give consent to this procedure, so it becomes an issue of consent um, and whether or not the women consented and arguments about consent. uh, As sort of what is. People become particularly concerned about about whether or not the women consented to the procedure kind of found out about him because he was it was in people news, it was in it was in sort of mainstream large circulated magazines at the time too, covered by the New York Times. So I had a um one of my faculty, one of my graduate faculty members had actually said, you know, you should look at this person too, because she probably read it somewhere. So that's how sure. I up, because he, he becomes sort of a national news item essentially.
1: Yeah, somewhat uh, almost out there uh, hiding in plain sight for those yeah. that uh, kind of remember that time period. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, some of what you just said about informed consent is uh, kind of takes me to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is that um, one aspect of your book that I found really fascinating was how you were able to place Dr. Burt's practices as a physician and surgeon in, in frankly, much broader context of changes in what was an accepted standard of care, uh, such as in surgery, or how informed consent uh, evolved over time, or notions of even medical paternalism, and and you alluded to this a little bit, I think, when you talked about episiotomy being essentially a fairly common practice throughout much of the 20th century in uh, delivery of babies. Could you talk a little bit more about some of these contextual pieces that you describe about uh, you know standard care and surgery, and informed consent, and so on? Because it, I found that actually absolutely fascinating because it it also underscored sort of some of the messiness. Involved in trying to uh, deal with some of these issues.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, so I will say, when I first started looking at Burt, the sort of dominant narrative was this is about consent, and he didn't get consent, and he was performing a surgery that nobody else did. And you know, those both those questions do matter. I don't downplay them. They both do matter. About did someone get consent? But first, the sort of normative idea about consent didn't really exist how we think about now in the 60s and 70s and even maybe into the 1980s particularly about something like an episiotomy which was just seen as if you went to the hospital this was a normative part of birth nobody was consenting for an episiotomy that would have been so to me the consent bit I don't want to call it a red herring because I think it is important Mm -hmm. but it's not really it's not really getting at sort of larger issues I think and not sort of realizing that that was actually fairly normal that he wouldn't have been getting consent. Um, but sort of thinking that about standard of care and surgery, it's also fairly normal how he went about developing a surgery and that surgeries oftentimes develop by a surgeon making a small adjustment and seeing good outcomes. And so then they make the small adjustment maybe in another couple of patients and they see good okay. outcomes. And that's how surgeries often develop. So the critique about maybe how he developed the surgery also, that's fairly common how surgeries even develop now. So to me, it was more um, thinking about how, so sort of the broader context of sort of thinking about surgical development, and I'm gonna say also medical regulation, given that this is a journal about medical regulation. Is it, it's one of the ways I think is interesting about BERT and problematic about BERT is it some ways, sort of the normative ways about how medicine um, regulates itself which isn't mm-hmm. necessarily always going to the board and reporting to the board, but physicians not referring someone to a doctor they find troubling. Or physicians um, uh, you know, getting, having been the second opinion and saying, no, I don't think you should be undergoing that surgery. Or the hospital, which is what they did with BERT, the hospital saying we'd like to see cases and case reports and we wanna see sort of the evidence that this is working. That all happened with BERT. Mm-hmm. But, a, but a couple of things is one, it it worked in it. There were physicians doing that kind of regulation, but that he still was practicing for another good 10 years is where I think this is an example of the system working and failing at the same time, because they did contain him in some ways and restrain him in some ways, but they couldn't sort of stop him then in some ways either. And one I think the most interesting thing sort of about understanding what happened and, um, thinking about sort of practice and how medicine practices, is one of the doctors I interviewed, um, who was in Dayton, Ohio at the time too, said, you know, it takes a while to actually see that patients are having bad outcomes from a surgery. Like it's not, I think that too often, there's an assumption that it's a glaringly obvious problem, but you have to look, you have to see there's a pattern first. And second, you have to realize the pattern and what where was the pattern originating from And that takes time. And it also means patients are going to have to go and seek treatment. And the patients have to realize that they're having problems. None of this is a very fast process. And so I think that's one of the interesting things about this too, is this sort of this broader context about how medicine regulates itself and how it operates and how it can take time for patterns to emerge.
1: That's interesting. Now, I I want to return to this notion of some of the traditional safeguards like hospitals and medical boards, but but before we go there any further, I wonder if we could take a step back, though, to Janet Phillips for Mm -hmm. a moment, uh, one of Dr. Burt's patients. For our listeners, can you explain why was she seeking out Dr. Burt and how was her experience with him uh, either similar to or, or different from that of other of Dr. Burt's patients?
0: Um, so first, I'm actually going to say why she's kind of, as you alluded to, the story is kind of about Dr. Burt and about sure. Miss Phillips. Um, she's the first woman to successfully go to trial for a malpractice case against him, which means there was a lot of, um, and it goes to the Supreme Court of Ohio. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of information I could obtain um, from about Miss Phillips' experience. But second to me, it was really important to have the story not just be about Burt and to have an additional sort of character, if you will, additional narrative going on, if you will, that was not just Bert. And so she was the most obvious choice because, again, she's the first patient to successfully sue him, um, excuse me, successfully go to trial against him. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I have her sort of as the uh, additional character. In addition to, she's both representative and um, important in the story in that she kind of is seen as a, figurehead almost among the other women who end up suing him as well, because she does become sort of the public face at some level of a number of the women who end up suing him in the late 80s and early 1990s. Um, But I will say back to her story, she seeks out Dr. Burt because quite frankly, Dr. Burt was a very popular apparently physician in Dayton in the 1970s. And she sought him out in the early 1980s um, because as she said, He had hours that she could get to she worked outside Mm -hmm. the home and she needed a second opinion about a hysterectomy so she sought him out originally and from the stories i've read about bert he was a very personable physician and so a lot of patients felt really comfortable with him i'll say comfortable enough with him that even when they were having some of these women had some significant problems post-surgery they kept going back because they trusted him so Phillips is then in some, that's why she started going to him was because he was um, a well-known clinician. He had office hours when she could see him um, outside of work time and in that sense, um, and then her sort of staying with him, post-surgical complications was at least from the publicly accessible information, also fairly common among a number of these women. Because again, it goes with, we often trust our physicians and, you know, we're not doctors, and that's why you go to a doctor so right a, i mean that that's so that trust theres as I tell my students yes. medicine is predicated on trust, and you're not going to be a good clinician or a good patient if you don't trust so there's that when that trust is snapped and finally does snap for her as well as a number of other patients with Dr. Burt um, but for a long time it took that the trust was there, and the sort of um as opposed to sort of seeing that maybe their bodies and the complications they were having were actually a result of a surgery that did not go as Bert had Mm -hmm. thought it would.
1: You know, in many ways, what most of the patients I think would have seen as the the traditional safeguards or guardians on their behalf, hospitals, and medical boards, for example, uh, appear to have failed in handling of Dr. Burt. And in, in fact, it seems like in this particular instance, your book made a fairly compelling argument that it was other parties, including the media. And you've alluded to a, a nationally syndicated program on CBS in particular. Um, why is it that you think that in this particular instance, some of those traditional safeguards like hospitals and medical boards uh, appear to have failed?
0: Um, partly. And I will say it's, it's unclear the Ohio State Medical Board's role of when they, they definitely do step in post the CBS show in the late 1988. Mm-hmm. The information is conflicting about how much they knew about Dr. Burt before then. So I'm going to leave the medical board time to the side for right now, because I will say that it's a conflicting on how much they knew. Certainly Understood. the local clinicians knew and the local sort of societies knew and they were concerned. They were concerned enough to have an advertisement sort of saying here's what we think about this surgery and but even that's couched in very medical language like it's not published in the sort of medical literature, which yeah, okay, if I'm if I don't know that that's significant, that's not significant to me. So in some ways, they, though, were successful, again, in curtailing, he only had practice um, privileges at one hospital in Dayton. Um, You know, the medical board, did look into a number of his surgeries that the tissue committee in particular which the tissue committee reviews um, surgical outcomes they reviewed his stuff quite often but you kind of get stuck then with how far can the hospital go because of restraint restrainer trade issues
1: mm-hmm. that burt
0: could have sued the hospital because no other hospital would let him practice so to to what i've said and what you just said it works in some ways and the doctors aren't referring patients to him. Nobody takes up love surgery that I can find. So nobody's sort of saying like this surgery is brilliant and I should be doing it that I can find. It doesn't mean it maybe doesn't happen, but at least it's accessible publicly. Nobody seems to. So in that sense, it worked like doctors were doing what they're supposed to, but it does speak to this larger issue of how could he keep practicing. And that I'm, and that, as you said, the media, um, play a really significant role. And I think historically, as well as now, they continue to play a really significant role in sort of thinking about who does speak up about physicians in a more public way. And as my book details, and as I think is true, and I think this is if I recall correctly, still true. Patients will talk about a doctor they find problematic more than another doctor will. They'll report it to the board more often than a physician Mm -hmm. will. And also we've seen time and time again, whether it's the, um, MSU physician who is with the athletes, whether it's a Dr. Burt, right? It's the press that then starts believing the women or the men. But common we've it's female patients that we're talking about. To right. say, like, there's something bad happening here and we need to look at it. Which I will say as an aside, to me, one of the scariest things about the sort of shrinking American press is it, that it's not just it's the accountability of elected officials, of anyone with some sort of power, like physicians, <laughs> to say like, yeah. hey, maybe maybe this is something that's worth looking into a little bit more.
1: Let me sh- shift this uh, subject just slightly uh, to your research and in, in particular in writing of the book. Um, as an author, were there any surprises or really unexpected findings or moments for you when you were researching this particular book?
0: So one that stands out, um, and you've read my book, so it's chapter three when I'm talking about how surgeries normally develop. I kept waiting to have be something like, because in the sort of popular press reporting, and I, I just said how the press is very valuable, but because it's also immediate, they don't dig in necessarily into things like someone like a historian can. But sort of immediate story is that this was a terrible surgery. He's an outlier and he didn't, you know, he sort of developed it like a maverick on his own type of narrative. Whereas, you know, surgeries, the sort of normative development of surgery is that it's a, the surgeon is successful and somebody, and they tweak something and they see success. And mm-hmm. so my, I guess my unexpected moment in researching it was sort of looking for, I don't want to call it the smoking gun, but that, sort of moment where I'm like this is what he did wrong right here and it was there's a lot that he did wrong but it's not like it could be like it's right here and I was ex- I kept waiting to think I would find it was sort of surgical development and I didn't find it there right. in the way I expected to
1: well and I think Dr. Rodriguez in some ways that's one of the strengths of your book because I think you do a wonderful job of contextualizing and placing something like that You know, in this larger uh, setting or or sort of historical development, um, I I think that's an absolute strength of what you've done. One one last question for you, and this is thinking about our uh, primarily the bulk of what our listeners might be. Individuals have a relationship with state medical boards. Uh, What would you like for a board or staff member from a state medical board to uh, take away from your book?
0: So I guess for me, are two things. First, and I know there's been work on doing this, so this isn't, this this is not a, like this is a novel idea I'm about to say, because I know there's been work on this, but sort of thinking about how physicians can mm-hmm. more safely say something about a peer that they're concerned about. Because um, I know, I mean, one of the reasons a number of physicians during the birth time didn't feel comfortable, because it it is a, it is a scary thing to take a step out and say, there's a peer I'm concerned about, because, for all kinds of reasons. One, because physicians work in a peer to network. I mean, so that'd be one is sort of how to so safely sort of think about how somebody can say, I'm concerned. I don't know if I fully see what's going on, but I think somebody should look into this. And second, I think there should be a greater focus on your responsibility as a physician to do so, to identify sort of poor practice and it not just being sort of medic. um, you know, there's a lot of focus perhaps on, um, uh, physicians and maybe drug use or something, but sort of larger sort of concerns about medical practice, because physicians do have one of the few, they're one of the few professions that do regulate themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: sort of that peer responsibility part of it is not just sort of focusing on how you don't commit malpractice, but also thinking, how can I support my peers and also recognize somebody that I'm concerned about? And then what do I do? And I think having a bigger focus on that, because Physicians are in a position of trust, and part of that part of that enabling physicians to regulate themselves is this idea that they do regulate themselves. And I think um, when something like a Burt case happens, or much more recent examples of when something happens, serves mm-hmm. to undercut that trust that we have in physicians. And I think I think then some having a safer sort of mechanism, a greater focus on the MD responsibility to speak out, is a, I think something to really. Um, work on or take from my book, I suppose. Great.
1: Well, Dr. Rodriguez, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Well,
1: I would also encourage our listeners to consider ordering a copy of The Love Surgeon through Rutgers University Press. And if you would like to read uh, our review of the book, and it's, it's, it's a glowing review, highly recommended, check out the current issue of JMR at www.jmronline.org, and thank you to our listeners. I hope everyone will join us for our next JMR podcast. Have a great day.
0: This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org.